Well, good morning to you again. Uh, if we have not met, uh, my name is Clay Holland. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King. I am so delighted that you are worshiping with us this morning. Uh, we are studying Paul's letter to the Ephesians. So if you have a Bible or a phone or an iPad or you want to pull up uh, the scripture, it is from Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to read all the way from verse 1 to verse 10. Last week we uh, read the same passage and we focused on verses 1 through 7. Uh, this week we're going to focus our attention on the last verses of this, verses 8 through 10. So Ephesians chapter 2, uh, beginning in verse 1. And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus." For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. We do thank you, uh, Father for the salvation that we have in Christ and the opportunity that we have to sit even in this time and to soak in the goodness of your gospel. We pray, Father, that we would do that and you would meet us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I've come to the conclusion over time that there are essentially two kinds of people in the world. There are Microsoft Word people and there are Microsoft Excel people. There are Word people and there are Excel people. Now, by vocation, I'm a Word person. You know, that's kind of where I live. That's my home. But it might surprise you to find out that I like to play around every once in a while in Excel. You know, for me, getting into Excel is like going on vacation to a strange land, you know. It's full of exotic things like, you know, formulas and, you know, all of this sort of thing. And, and then I come back home and I settle back into my vocational home of Microsoft Word, right? Now, my oldest son is one of those people who thinks in Excel, I'm not sure where he came from, but he lives, well, it doesn't live in our house, but, you know, he, he's an Excel guy, right? Uh, and at some point in, I don't, I don't remember when this was, but it was some point during this whole lockdown thing. You know, it was either last spring or this fall or at some point, he was working on a project for one of his classes. Now, he's an accountant, so, you know, Excel is like in his wheelhouse or a soon-to-be accountant. And, and I was walking by him because his desk was our dining room table, and I looked over his shoulder, and there was the most beautiful spreadsheet that I had ever seen. 
It was sensible. It was elegant. It was well formatted. It made sense, you know. But he was looking at it, and he wasn't satisfied with it. I was like, wow, that's so awesome. And he was like, mm, you know, kind of grumpy about the whole thing. And so finally, he double-clicked on one of the cells, and that's when I saw what was really going on. He double-clicked the cell, and this whole paragraph of a formula popped up, and it made zero sense to me whatsoever. It was like full of equal signs and parentheses and you know all kinds of stuff, and it went on like forever and ever and ever. And so he goes into the middle of this formula, and he tweaks a little bit of something, and then he gets back out of it, and then he's like, ah, he rests because it made sense. Now, because I'm a Microsoft Word guy, I immediately went to an analogy, right? I said, wow, this is basically like our lives, isn't it? Isn't this just like our lives here in Houston? What is it that we want to present to ourselves? What is it that we want to present to the world? We want to present to the world that we are beautifully organized spreadsheets. Everything is in order, right? Clean, organized well-formatted, impeccable. But if you were to go into our hearts and you were to double-click, you know, click, click, what would you see? The chaos that undergirds all of that, right? This whole operating system that we work through to try to get to what we present on the outside, essentially to be there. The effort and the angst, all of the things that we want to keep hidden and buried, you know, in the formula bar. So we can present to one another and to the world that everything's good, everything's fine, everything's working just as it should. I think this is the standard operating system of Houston in many ways. We want to present ourselves as people who have it all together, or even to spiritualize it, to use Paul's words in Ephesians. We want to be people of good works. But that's simply the surface And if there is no actual transformation of the heart, no transformation of the underlying operating system, all it takes is one gust of wind to blow, to blow over this whole fragile facade that we have built for ourselves. What we need is not the outward appearance. We need the inward transformation. And that is what the Apostle Paul is getting at in the first seven verses of Ephesians chapter 2 that we talked about last week. When you truly encounter the gospel, the good news of your salvation in Christ, radical transformation occurs in your life. God makes something possible that was previously impossible. You go from death to life. You go from condemnation to glorification. You go from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. Radical transformation at the level of the heart, not just at the surface of our lives. But the question is this, how does that happen? How does this transformation occur? How does this radical transformation at the level of your heart take place? That's what verses 8 through 10 is about. Speaking of Excel through what you might call an order of operations that can't possibly be reversed. If you remember Algebra 1, right? If you try to add before you solve what's in the parentheses, you're going to get the wrong answer. 
And if you try to disorder what Paul presents in Ephesians chapter 2, you are not going to have the gospel. You're going to have something entirely different. And so this is what he says, and the order is critical. Grace leads to faith, leads to works. Grace leads to faith, leads to works. And the order there is everything. So let's begin where Paul does, and where Paul begins is with grace. For by grace you have been saved, he says in verse 8. Last week I defined the word grace as unmerited favor. It's getting something wonderful when you deserve something terrible. It's having something amazing happen to you, and what should happen to you is exactly the opposite. Now, I do know that in, if, if you've been a Christian for a while or if you've been kind of in religious circles for a while or particularly if you've been in religious circles like you know a, a Presbyterian church like this one, you may have heard the word grace a lot. And it can kind of become like the uh, teacher on the Charlie Brown you know, movies on TV. Wah, 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 grace, yeah, yeah, wah, wah. You know, we get that. We like grace. We believe in it. But let's kind of step into this for just a second. And let's think about what this means. Because it's really possible to say that you like the concept of grace, but not to really like the concept of grace. Because what's required for grace to be, what is required for our salvation to be all of God? Well, what is required is humility, humbling, a diminution of pride, and a recognition that our salvation is none up to us. Grace can actually be threatening. It can actually be threatening at your level of self-righteousness or self-sufficiency. Think about this for a second. How much in your day-to-day life do you like asking for help? Is that like one of your favorite things? I mean, would you rather go into debt on your credit card than call the deacons and ask for financial assistance on something? Would you rather, you know, wait, you know, for like two hours for DoorDash to deliver you a meal when you can't cook or you can't get out than allow one of your neighbors or somebody in your parish at Christ the King to bring a meal to you? How much do you like asking for help? My guess is for many of us, not that much, right? Why? Because it's threatening to us to ask for help. We have to admit to somebody that we don't have it all together. We have to admit to somebody that we have a need that we can't meet. And grace is exactly the same. It challenges our pride. Because at some level, deep down, we know that if we give into the grace of God, we're going to give up at some level some control. And so we want to hedge a little bit with God. We want grace, but maybe a little bit of grace, not too much. Maybe we want to uh, own this, we we want to create a system in our lives where salvation is mostly up to God, where salvation is almost all the way up to God, but we're still, you know, have something to do with it. We're still playing into it, but that isn't grace. Now, there's a famous story, and to be honest, a very famous sermon illustration from this story. From It's about grace, and it's from the musical version of Les Miserables. Uh, If you've ever seen that musical, you'll know the main character, Jean Valjean, was sent to prison for 19 years 
for stealing uh, some food when he was starving to death. He stole some food, he was caught, he was sent to prison, he served 19 years for that. After 19 years, he was released from prison, but he wasn't released with a clean slate. He was released having to carry documentation that branded him as a criminal, which meant that he couldn't like really re-enter the world, and it kind of guaranteed that he was just kind of go back into this cycle of a life of crime. And at some point in this, a very kind man, a bishop in the church, takes Jean Valjean into his home. He gives him warm food to eat. He gives him a bed to sleep in. But what does Jean Valjean do with this act of kindness? He wakes up in the middle of the night. He sneaks around the house. He steals all of the bishop's silver, and he sneaks away in the middle of the night. But he doesn't get away with it. He gets caught by the police, and the police drag him back in front of this bishop and says, this man stole from you, and he will not get away with it. And what does the bishop do? He says, he didn't steal that from me. I gave him all of that. But, my friend, he says, you you left in such a hurry that you forgot the best pieces, and he held out to him two silver candlesticks grace, right? And in the musical version of Les Mis, Jean Valjean breaks down. He is a transformed man. He understands that his life has been spared by an act of kindness that he didn't deserve. But here's what's interesting about that. In the novel Les Mis, you get a little bit more of what is actually happening in the heart and the head of Jean Valjean. And in the novel of Les Mis, He wrestles with this act of kindness. He struggles with it. He considers strongly not accepting the grace of the bishop. He considers strongly admitting his fault, going back to jail, believing that he can get out again, believing that he can make his own life for himself. He considers strongly not receiving grace. Why? Because he knows that if he accepts that grace, his life will be transformed forever. His soul, as he sings in the musical, will belong to God, and he'll never be the same. And he wasn't the same. That's what grace really means. It's a transformative threat to your self-righteousness, and it allows zero room in your heart to hedge against God to make you alive in Christ. Grace means that your salvation is all of God and that it involves all of you. Now this grace leads to faith. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace comes first and then faith. The order here is absolutely critical because any disordering of any of these verses is not the gospel. It's something else entirely. You don't believe and then God loves you. God loves you and then you believe. Now if you want to take Paul's words out of kind of the propositional here and put them into the narrative, which I think uh, helps us kind of put meat on the bones of these sorts of things sometimes, I don't think you need to look any farther than to a story we've already referenced in our liturgy this morning, the story of the prodigal son from Luke chapter 15. 
Maybe some of you are familiar with that story, maybe some of you are not, but it involves two sons, an older son and a younger son. And the younger son comes to his father one day and says, Father, I want my share of the inheritance right now. What he's actually saying to his father is horribly disrespectful. Dad, I wish you were dead, but since you can't be dead, let's act like you're dead and give me my money now because that's all I really want from you. And his father acquiesces and he gives his youngest son his share of the inheritance and his younger son leaves home and he promptly squanders it on parties and prostitutes. But there is a change in this story. Jesus says when he's telling this story that while this young man was sharing food with pigs in a pigsty, pigs being unclean animals in Israel, so this, this young son has sunk to the depths, wrestling with pigs just to get the husks that they are being fed. Jesus says he came to his senses and he remembered home. And he thought, you know, even the lowest, most menial servants in my father's house don't do this. They have plenty of food to eat. Now that coming to your senses, that remembering home in the terms of Ephesians, is that work of the Holy Spirit that calls us to Christ. That longing for home is that first inkling of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's that call that something can be different. And the young son stands up from that pigsty, turns his face toward home, starts walking towards home. And the whole time that he's walking towards home, what's he doing? He's rehearsing a speech for his father. You don't des- I don't deserve to be called your son anymore, but if you'll just make me like one of your lowest servants, I will serve you. But then there's the beauty in this story. Jesus says that his father saw him while his son was yet a long way off and he ran to him and he embraced him and he said, let's throw a party. This son of mine was lost and now he is found. He doesn't say, my new servant. He doesn't say, my new keeper of the cows. He says, this son of mine has come back. He has returned that relationship by the initiation of the Father is completely restored. That's grace. That is grace. The Father took full initiative at restoring the relationship when every action of His Son previous to that deserved exactly the opposite response. Now, what does the young son do? Well, what can he do? All he really does is melt into his father's gracious embrace. That's faith. That is faith. You don't have to make faith too complicated. It's as simple as melting into the gracious embrace of God. Because that's all you have. And he has run to you. I actually think there's something really refreshing and restful about thinking about faith in relational terms this way and not only in rational terms. Because if God is grabbing you with grace, you just grab him back. That's really what it is. If God's throwing his arms around you and grabbing onto you, just hug him back. 
That's faith. I think sometimes we make faith too complicated. Okay, I have to believe this, and I have to believe this this way, and it has to be neat and tidy, and then I and then I have to believe this. But what if I doubt about this? I mean, I struggle with this a little bit, and and and, and some of us in our minds tend to just churn on this and churn and churn and churn, and we struggle to know if we believe. If you are one of those people that wrestles with your faith, you wrestle with doubt, you wrestle with assurance of your salvation, you can think about it like this. There's good news. Because wrestling and longing and yearning and distress spiritually are all signs of grace. They're all signs of God. They're signs that God is moving toward you. Why? Because if he weren't, you wouldn't care. You'd be completely apathetic. You would just blow it off. You wouldn't wrestle. You wouldn't doubt. You wouldn't struggle. You wouldn't have some yearning or some spiritual distress. You wouldn't be longing for home, as C.S. Lewis puts it. The Father is running towards you. Grace is coming your way, right? And faith is just grabbing a hold of that grace. And sometimes you're able to do it with both hands and throw both arms around God and give him a bear hug. Sometimes you just kind of have like a, 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 you know, an index finger and a thumb and you're just kind of hanging on to the corner of his garment. But whatever it is, grab it. Grab it. Because it is preceded by grace. So grace leads to faith that leads to what? Works? But that's what it says. Grace leads to faith, leads to works. That's the word the Apostle Paul uses here in verse 10. But look at how careful Paul is not to reverse the order. You are saved by grace through faith, he tells us in verse 8. And this is not of works. That's what he says. Not of works, so that no one may boast. And yet, there's a transformational return to dignity that's a result of God's grace leading to your faith. And so the full truth is on display here. Faith, if it is really faith, will evidence itself in a life that is moving, even if it is meandering, even if it is stumbling, even if it's getting lost in the woods for a while, it is moving in the direction of holiness. Now here's a place where we need to be really careful because I do know how and why so many of us have this visceral, visceral and kind of emotional reaction to thinking about works or good works at all. Maybe you came out of a very legalistic background spiritually or a fundamentalistic uh, religious background. Maybe you even came out of a, uh, an abusive background where somebody used the Bible as kind of a, uh, a hammer you know, in your life and, and used it in, in ways that were not gracious um, in your life. And when you think about being manipulated or into you know, doing what somebody wants to do and you run into these words about good works, maybe just go, oh, no, I don't, want to, I don't want that. I don't want to talk about that. I don't want anything to do with that. And yet it is also clear from the Scriptures that, that growth in holiness, what theologians call sanctification, is an integral part of the life of a follower of Christ. God grabs hold of us by His grace. We grab hold of him right back through faith. There is a definitive moment of salvation. 
you are saved. You are saved by grace through faith. And you are gifted the Holy Spirit, which dwells in you and moves you toward a life that more and more images Christ. But the order is critical. My professor at Covenant Seminary, Brian Chapel, who was the uh, president there, he was also kind of a grammar nerd. He's put it in grammar nerd terms. He says that in the scriptures, the indicative always comes before the imperative. Or he's also a rhymer, if you've ever heard any of his sermons. He would say it like this. What is true precedes what to do. What is true comes before what to do. Tim Keller puts it this way. Being comes before doing. Being comes before doing. And you see that right here in verse 10. You are God's workmanship. That's being. You are created the image of God to mirror him in this world. That is who you are. Now this word for workmanship in the text is really important here. It is the Greek word poiema. Poema, and you may hear in that Greek word the English word poem. What's a poem? A poem is a literary work of art. It is a it is a literary form that is created and crafted and built. And Paul says, This is who you are. You are a created work of art. As an individual, you are a creative work of art by a brilliant craftsman, God Himself. The problem is, if you were here last week, this is one of the things we talk about. The problem is, is that you're a broken work of art. You're a marred work of art. You're a crumbling work of art because of the effects of sin. In the city of Florence, Italy, um, there stands one of the most iconic statues or sculptures of all times. It's Michelangelo's David. You know, it's in the Academia, Academia, I don't even know how to pronounce it. I've been there, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'm going to say Academia. It's in that museum in Florence, and you can go see it. Now imagine you go to Florence and you see the sculpture of David, one of the most iconic and brilliant works of art in all of Western history. And you walk by it and you bump it a little bit with your elbow. You've got to suspend a little disbelief here, but track with me. You bump it and it falls off its pedestal. Bam! And it breaks into like 75 pieces, right? Not a million pieces, but it breaks all over the place. And you're like, oops, I probably should have done that. And then you look at it and you go, you know what? That thing's broken. That's broken. But I can, still, I, I can still tell it's a sculpture. It may even be Michelangelo's sculpture of David. I can't tell. There's some marks of it that I can still see. It's broken. It's marred. You can still sort of make out what it is. That's you. And that is me. We are God's work of art that is marred and broken, almost beyond recognition, but not quite because of sin. So what is to be done? Well, you could just break that statue, you know, and you could just stand there and go, statue, put yourself back together, man. What the heck is wrong with you? Fix yourself. And the statue would say, I don't have a brain. I don't know who you're talking to. I can't really do anything. I'm a statue. I'm a sculpture. He can't do it. That sculpture cannot fix itself. You need the work of a skilled and brilliant artist, a craftsman. Someone with skill must attend to it. That's grace. Grace restores the image of God in you. 
And by grace, you become who you are truly created to be. You see, you're truly created for good works. To live a life that more and more mirrors your creator. Which the text says God prepared in advance for us to walk in. But it is grace that changes everything. Some of you who are here this morning may be struggling. You may be struggling to be free. I can only imagine that in this year that that we've had. Do you all realize that this day, this particular Sunday, marks the very last time that we met for worship before we went all online? One year ago today. And it's been a hard year. You're, some of you are struggling to be free. You're, you're desperate to prove your worth. You're desperate to make meaning of your life. You're desperate to tamp down and hide all the fear and all the anxiety and all the alienation that you feel. You are so afraid of failure. You feel like if you fail in any one thing, everything is lost. You're afraid of being found out or you're expa- afraid of being exposed as just another normal human, right? You're struggling to be free. The gospel is not about struggling to be free. The gospel is about being free to struggle. The gospel is not about struggling to be free. The gospel is about being free to struggle. The gospel tells you that you are changed, that you are changing. God, the great artist, continues to chisel you into what he is making you to be. There's pain in that. That's one of the reasons that we don't like it. Sometimes Jesus takes up the little tiny chisel just for some details right in our lives. But every once in a while, you gotta make a, you know, you gotta make a shoulder. So you gotta take a hunk out, and that can hurt. That can be painful. But God is at work. It is grace that leads to faith, that leads to works. I have a friend who's a pastor in uh, North Austin. Um, I think really in Cedar Park. And um, his son, who is a teenager, works at uh, HEB in Leander. And he was on duty at the HEB in Leander on the Tuesday of the ice storm. And so here's what happened at HEB in Leander on the Tuesday of the ice storm. It was open. They had electricity. They had water. The doors were unlocked. Things were happening. People were in the store. People were filling up their carts. Uh, not everybody could get to work on that day, and so they didn't have all of their cash registers operating, and so there were lines. And so there was like a line of about 20 you know, carts deep and other people kind of meandering around the store getting with the things that they need, getting water and diapers and you know, probably hiding a few bottles of wine in there too on the, you know, for the ice storm. And they were all there, backed up, and all of a sudden, and you know what this felt like, the power went off. Click. And then there was a collective groan. because what happens I mean the power went off you couldn't run credit cards if you didn't have cash you couldn't pay for your groceries so people were getting ready just to abandon their carts and walk out of the store except that the manager who was in the store said no it's fine just take what you've got they had to close the doors they couldn't stay open for everybody to come in because there was no electricity no water but all of the people that were in that store who had been shopping just were let they, they let them leave the store with everything they had already in their carts massive act of grace they paid for nothing right but then there's more to the story because what happened in the parking lot Because there were a bunch of people driving in and there were a bunch of people that were already in line trying to get into the store. But now the store was closed. 
So the people who had gotten free groceries began to share it with the people that didn't have any. They would take their big flats of water and they would open them up and they would grab a big handful and they would give them to somebody who was unable to go into the store. They would share their food, they would share their diapers, they would share their water. They had experienced grace. And that grace had been transformative. And they were sharing that grace with the others who were there. It's a really beautiful illustration of the transformative power of grace in our life. Grace leads to faith, leads to works. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for the amazing act of grace uh, in our lives. And we pray that we would grab you as you have grabbed us. Even if you are grabbing uh, someone this morning for the very first time, I pray, Father, that they would not let this moment pass, but would believe, would grab you back in faith, and that you would do that transformative work. Father, do walk with us in that grace, we pray, by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen.